Welcome to Making Sense of the Madness. I'm your host, Sean Morgan, standing in for John Michael Chambers. We're going to have a great show for you today. We have a guest, David Clements, a professor, a legal professor who's going to go into all the details of the audits that are sweeping across the nation. That's going to be a really fascinating interview. And I'm also going to give a monologue about this sobering day in American history, uh, about the fall of Kabul. Uh, so we're going to get right into that after a word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers, the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Family, finances, faith, and freedom are four things that most of us would do almost anything to protect. At American Media Periscope, we trust the team at Sovereign Advisors with financial advice. With over 27 years of experience, a team that believes in people over profit and shares our views that family, finances, faith, and freedom need to be protected can help you protect your finances from erosion due to governmental policies that are out of our control. What is in our control? Our own decision to act or to not act. At American Media Periscope, we encourage you to act. Action changes things. Call Sovereign Advisors today, ask for Dr. Kirk Elliott, and start working with a team that will help you protect your retirement assets while sharing your desire to protect family, faith, and freedom. Call them today at 720-605-3900 and tell them John Michael Chambers sent you. Remember, freedom, it's up to us. Well, the illegitimate President Biden seemed very confident that things were going to go smoothly uh, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let's see video of what Biden had to say previous to the fall of Kabul. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam? With some people feeling none whatsoever, zero. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comfortable. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is unlikely. Don't you bear some responsibility for the outcome? The Taliban ends up back in control and women end up losing the no, rights. No, I don't. Do I bear responsibility? Zero responsibility. Well, there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, you know, it's just interesting to see how things have unfolded exactly the way he said they wouldn't. Uh, let's see what President Trump had to say in the first uh, producer. Can you can play the first show the first image, and I'll read out loud. Can anyone even imagine taking out our military before evacuating civilians and others who have been good to our country and who should be allowed to seek refuge? In addition, these people left top fight, top flight and highly sophisticated equipment. Who can believe such incompetence? Under my administration, all civilians and equipment would have been removed. And President Trump had a lot to say on the situation as it was unfolding. Biden was uh, missing in action, not addressing the American people, supposedly at Camp David. Uh, and Trump just kept on uh, sending out these social media messages. The next one says... 
so uh, producer, you can play show the second one. First, Joe Biden surrendered to COVID and it has come roaring back. Then he surrendered to the Taliban, who has quickly overtaken Afghanistan and destroyed confidence in American power and influence. The outcome in Afghanistan, including the withdrawal, would have been totally different if the Trump administration had been in charge. Who or what will Joe Biden surrender to next? Someone should ask him if they can find him. So he really stressed that in this message because no one seemed to know where Joe Biden was because he was just hiding out and not addressing the American people during this crisis. In the next message, producer, you can show the next one. It is time for Joe Biden to resign in disgrace for what he has allowed to happen in Afghanistan. Along with the tremendous surge in COVID, the border catastrophe, the destruction of energy independence, and our crippled economy, it shouldn't be a big deal because he wasn't elected legitimately in the first place. And the next thing uh, that Trump had to say was, Joe Biden gets it wrong every time on foreign policy and many other issues. Everyone knew he wouldn't handle the pressure. Even Obama's Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, said as much. He ran out of Afghanistan instead of following the plan our administration left for him, a plan that protected our people and our property and ensured the Taliban would never dream of taking our embassy or providing a base for new attacks against America. The withdrawal would be guided by facts on the ground. After I took out ISIS, I established a credible deterrent. That deterrent is gone now. The Taliban no longer has fear or respect for America or America's power. What a disgrace it will be when the Taliban raises their flag over America's embassy in Kabul. This is complete failure through weakness, incompetence, and total strategic incoherence. Had our 2020 election not been rigged, and if I were now president, the world would find that our withdrawal from Afghanistan would be a conditions-based withdrawal. I personally had discussions with top Taliban leaders whereby they understood what they are doing now would not have been acceptable. It would have been a much different and much more successful withdrawal, and the Taliban understood that better than anyone. What is going on now is not acceptable. It should have been done much better. So I, I don't know if the producer got the last one. Uh, on the page because I ran into two at the same time. But the point is Trump had a lot to say about this crisis, this situation. And he was specific. He got right down to the actual differences between his withdrawal plan and the Biden withdrawal plan that he changed. He changed the timetables. Uh, so this is this is looking really bad. Let's take a look at Joe Biden's Camp David photo that has a timestamp discrepancy. This is what they claim uh, they claim that Joe Biden was at Camp David, you know, being clued in as to what was going on. He's supposedly the commander in chief and supposedly calling the shots here. Uh, but the timestamp is off. You know, this is not a photo from this past weekend. This is a photo from the last time he was at Camp David. And we know that from the times that are shown between Moscow and London, it's from a different because of daylight's savings time, it's a different time zone than it would have been. And the White House has not responded to questions on the time zone discrepancy between Moscow and London in those photos from Camp David. And China is just loving the latest American failure, which is emboldening it to consider invading Taiwan. Let's take a look at that social media post. So yeah, on this state media that they do, communist media that they do in China, they're basically saying, hey, America, they failed in Vietnam. They, they failed in Afghanistan. They're not going to be up for it. When we invade Taiwan, they're not going to be able to do anything about it. That's the way China feels about it. And China, 
they've been doing a strategy to ally with the Taliban for a long time now as part of their Belt and Road Initiative. They're going all over the world trying to exploit countries for their resources in Afghanistan, borders China. This is a country that's very important to China. And um, how do you think China feels now that there's been this great failure of foreign policy and military policy? Uh, they probably feel uh, very strong right now compared to America. And look at how big tech has just been marching right in line with uh, with the Taliban. <laughs> you know, look at Jack Dorsey at Twitter, how he's actually allowing the Taliban to have Twitter accounts as they're doing a real insurrection in their in, in Afghanistan, overthrowing a democratic government. And uh, they get to have a Twitter account, but Trump doesn't. So that's the double standard. Uh, Twitter and big tech is on the side of radical Islam. You know, American citizens, they're not even getting priority to be airlifted to safety. Now, this is just America last policy to every detail. The Afghan refugees are being prioritized while the Americans are in danger. And thousands of refugees are going to be stored or are going to live at military installations in red states. So isn't that interesting? Even though New York City is completely empty now because everyone's leaving it, they chose not to put these Afghan refugees in blue states. They want to stick them in red states. And uh, we just know how the deep state works. They use these sleeper cells. So it's not very comforting to know that there are going to be thousands of Afghan refugees in the U.S. And instead of focusing on what actually wins wars, over the past 20 years, we spent $250 million on equity funding. In the last couple of months, we've been flying pride flags at the Kabul embassy and virtue signaling. And Biden had been missing in action all weekend. And his press secretary went on a week-long vacation. And Vice President Harris said that she's just focusing on Haiti right now. Everyone was missing in action. It was just a vacuum of leadership. And now Biden and his media lackeys will try to blame this obvious failure of strategy and leadership on Trump. But remember, it was Biden who changed the transition plan. It was Biden that changed the timetables. The Trump administration developed a conditions-based withdrawal. According to this plan, no withdrawal would have occurred until final successful peace negotiations had took place between the Taliban and the democratic government of Afghanistan. So the question is, was this a manufactured military loss, the same way Biden seems to be purposefully ruining our economy, the COVID situation, the border, or is it just pure incompetence? And today, Biden finally, after being asleep in his basement all weekend, Biden finally addressed the nation and he read awkwardly from a teleprompter and took zero responsibility for this failure. And I hope this will be a really strong wake-up call to all of those people who stu still believed that Biden was a legitimate president or that he was a legitimate leader. That's it for the monologue today. It's, it's a sad day. It's a sobering day when you know that 20,000 Americans have died in Afghanistan and thousands have been maimed, and this is the way it ends. Um, we're going to go to commercial break, and then we're going to come back with David Clements. He's a professor who is all over these audits. He's going to get all into it with me as soon as we come back.
Hello, everyone. This is John Michael Chambers, the creator and founder of American Media Periscope. Did you know that annuities are a great way to protect a portion of your retirement portfolio from downside risk? And unlike CDs and money market accounts, they accumulate tax deferred and can participate in the upside of market indexes. And they are probate free and can provide an income that you can never outlive. With all the different companies, features, indexes, and benefits, which annuities do in fact offer, it can be confusing choosing which annuity is best for your unique situation. Let a company you can trust help you to select an annuity that is right for you. Call the Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. That's Cleveland Insurance Group at 844-USA-2024. Tell them John Michael Chambers sent you. Add an annuity to your retirement portfolio and start enjoying the many benefits that smart investors love. Cleveland Insurance Group. Well, Dr. David Clements is a professor of law at New Mexico State University. He's a longtime prosecutor that once oversaw six law enforcement agencies. He's prosecuted thousands of criminals, including drug trafficking organizations, and tried several first-degree murder cases to conviction. Dr. Clements came to national prominence after standing up to his university's president for unfairly targeting conservatives on campus and leading efforts for full forensic audits across the nation in the wake of the 2020 stolen election. Let's welcome Dr. David Clements to the program. Thank you. Thank you How for you having doing? me. I'm doing well. It's great to have you on the show. Um, so you know, before we get, I want to pick your legal brain on a lot of different things, but before we get into all that, I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on with Afghanistan, because that is just heavy on my heart and my mind today. And I know you do a lot of commentary on your show. So any, any thoughts or insights that maybe I didn't bring up uh, during the monologue? No, I, well, I wouldn't say that I'm a foreign policy expert. I'm, I'm someone that has watched what we've done overseas and have not been a fan of it for, for the better part of 20 years, uh, our involvement in getting into the Iraq war, uh, the Iraq war was based on bad intelligence and based on a UN authorization, we've stayed in Afghanistan for close to 20 years. And so I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a procedural guy, I'm a constitutionalist, and I find it upsetting that we've actually deviated from, you know, the constitutional responsibility of Congress to declare war and not go through these um, more globalist routes. Um, but then I started feeling a little bit better when President Trump was elected. He started to practice a more non-interventionist policy. He was looking at the cost benefit of what it takes to be there, what it takes to occupy certain areas, the cost on human lives, and whether or not we were taking up too much of the, uh, the effort in funding security to protect the world. And in four years, he did amazing things. And as soon as we had that momentum, it appears that we had the great election hoax and fraud of 2020. And now we're suffering for it. Yeah, it hurts to hear Trump's statements, his official statements where he's just like, hey, th this crisis wouldn't even happen under me. I mean, I'm sure we a lot of ex-presidents could like to say that type of stuff, but it, in this case, it's, it's pretty uh, demonstrable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I wish we weren't there in the first place either, but since we were, you know, it'd be nice not to waste all that investment of human life and, and billions of taxpayer dollars. 
So uh, I know that you're really hot on the, these election audits. I was wondering if you could give us a rundown of the different states that we should really be paying attention to right now. Well, it starts with Arizona, Maricopa County, because they've done the most work when it comes to actually getting evidence out. So I, I know that they're wrapping up the last phase of their audit, which is the canvas. They've already looked at the paper. Um, they're still waiting for routers, which have not been provided by the election board of supervisors, which is problematic because it violates the subpoena that was issued that was found to be lawful by the judge. But we got to start there. And um, I've been told internally that the findings are just going to be shocking. And I believe it's going to be enough to decertify the electors out of that state. From there, I would move on to Georgia because you already have admissions from the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, that they don't, they're missing chain of custody documents for over 300,000 mail-in votes. That's greater than the margin of victory. So even if they don't get into a full forensic audit right now, you've got enough of a question mark over that election that they've talked about taking Fulton County's elections and putting it into state receivership, which means they have no trust in the most populous county in the state. And then you go over to the state of Pennsylvania, which is probably the worst state from a standpoint of electoral outcomes and the amount of fraud. If you add the, uh, the amount of electoral votes out of each of those three states and subtract them from Biden's total, you get below 270 electoral votes, which means you don't have a president of the United States. So that would be the approach. But you never know. There's always surprises. We had Colorado, Mesa County in particular where we had um, proof of forensic images of Dominion machines destroying logs, which violates federal law. They're supposed to hold on to those logs for at least 11 months, I mean, 22 months, but they didn't do that. And we're finding similar evidence out of Antrim County, Michigan. So the take home I would give your viewers is that under Throckmorton, which is a US Supreme Court case in the 1800s, still good law, and tens of thousands of cases dealing with fraud, fraud vitiates all, it destroys all. And if we've got fraud that is at this level, you don't have the rightful president sitting in the White House right now. There's the mainstream media likes to repeat this talking point that it doesn't even matter if things were off, you know, they don't like to, to admit that anything bad happened, but they're like, even if it did happen, you can't do anything about it now. And they, they're trying to focus on this idea that there's no precedent. So what is their legal argument? And can you, you know, kind of address that? I know you tried to say the fraud vitiates everything and you, you mentioned the 1800s case, but is there any, anything else that you wanted to mention that, that to, to rebut that kind of argument that there's no precedent so you can't do anything about it? Well, we've got tens of thousands of fraud cases that have gone through the court system over 200 plus years. So to say that we don't have precedent on the issue of fraud is flawed and it's specious at best. What they're talking about is we haven't had a case that is on point where you have a presidential election that was uh, affected this way. So there is no precedent for that particular set of facts, but it doesn't mean we don't have precedent on the legal remedies associated with fraud. And so that, that right there is something where I think the snake news media wants this to be true, but there's plenty of law that would guide our decisions. This would be a case of first impression. And cases of first impression are heard by the Supreme Court every year. Just because we haven't had this set of facts doesn't mean we're precluded from having it before the Supreme Court. And let's say that 
you know, they find fraud in the Arizona election. Uh, what would be the legal uh, process to address that at the state level, and then, um, and then, you know, maybe making it to the Supreme Court level? Well, under each state constitution, the legislature has the sole authority to set the time, place, and manner of elections. That means they can also regulate election integrity, which means if they are convinced that they had a fraudulent election, they can recall and decertify the electors they sent. If that happens, you will have a historic first. Basically, you won't have a president of the United States. You'll have a president of 49 states and counting. That's, that's a constitutional crisis. Now, if that happens, I would expect the corrupt attorneys of Perkins Coie to want to get a declaratory judgment and bring this to a court. And that's likely to happen. At some point, it's going to have to make its way up through the appeals to the Supreme Court. And at that point, it will be the first time that the Supreme Court's going to have to deal with the issue of substantive fraud. Every case that's been heard to date has been on, has basically been punted or dismissed under the doctrine of legal standing. And because it's a, it's a legal remedy that dismisses cases, you never get to the merits. So everyone's been very confused, thinking that the courts have evaluated the fraud evidence. That's simply not true. There was two cases of um, electoral outcome that were set for one hour out of hundreds and hundreds of cases. And uh, they didn't have a meaningful hearing. I've actually checked the court logs. Um, so whatever the lies that have been perpetuated by the mainstream media, they're simply not true. We haven't had an opportunity. Arizona is going to change that because the entire nature of the audit for over 60 days is looking at evidence of de facto fraud. The court's going to have to wrestle with that. Why do you think they've decided not to? Just your personal opinion. Why has the Supreme Court refused to, to look at the merit of this thus far? One, I think they didn't want to be, they didn't want to disenfranchise perhaps millions of Biden voters. And the way that you do that is when you talk about standing, what they're telling people is don't make us decide as a court. Don't make us provide a legal ruling. This is a political question. And you can resolve this through your legislatures. And technically that's correct. The problem is, is that the legislatures were cowards. The courts were cowards and everyone was punting the ball to each other instead of addressing the issue that needed to be addressed. And over time, we ran out of time because we had until January 6th to have formal certification by Congress. And so everyone was able to absolve themselves by saying, look, we tried, um, but it's their job. And that's not the way that you have a representative republic. You need to take ownership of the problem. And the legislatures had enough evidence early on, because remember, Team Giuliani, Jenna Ellis had public hearings where they had eight hours of witnesses showing and testifying to discrepancies. There's thousands of affidavits of anomalies, statistical or otherwise, that show that there was rampant fraud. Um, but the courts weren't going to take that. And you have to think about this in the, in the context of fraud's a very difficult case to prove. It doesn't mean that they, you can't prove it, but it doesn't lend itself well to a prosecution, if you will, over a two-month period. So a lot of the arguments that were being asserted really backed off from fraud and were on different issues where you could just get a legal ruling. So one of the legal rulings that we saw was out of Georgia, where Stacey Abrams had a secret agreement with Brett Raffensperger, who was the secretary of state, to change the voting procedures. 
Now, under the state constitution of Georgia, that's not permissible. That's unconstitutional. So that was a great argument to assert and bring it to the court because they could just make a ruling that's unconstitutional and uh, you're going to have to redo some things in Georgia or at least not count those electors until you get clarity. Um, but for whatever reason, we saw a lot of political cowardice and the Supreme Court, I think this was just a byproduct of them thinking that if they ruled in accordance with the law, we would have seen an outbreak of riots like we saw over the summer. Antifa was threatening things to happen. Uh, you had the issue with George Floyd, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Portland, Oregon. Courthouses were set fire to, and they were worried about a crisis. So they weren't applying the law blindly. When you think about Lady Liberty, she's got the blindfold, she's got the scales of justice. That didn't happen here. They were thinking about the outcome of what would transpire on the streets, and justice was denied that day. Yeah, to me, that's the whole point of having an independent judiciary branch is to uh, to avoid this whole idea of uh, trying to make decisions based on what the the masses want or or what specific groups want. Uh, I felt really let down by the courts uh, during 2020 and, and 2021 so far. Uh, the fact that, as you kept stating, there was cowardice. There was a lack of courage to do do their job. And, um, and so I'm wondering what's going to happen. So let's run through a thought experiment here. Uh, what if it does go to the Supreme Court and they rule that there was fraud and that Biden is an illegitimate president? What happens next? Well, uh, first things that means I'm going to run out in the street and I don't care if I'm in my underwear, I'm going to scream with joy because that's the appropriate <laughs> ruling. That's that's what I think millions of people will do if that happens. Um, I don't know how we're going to get there, but I think the fraud has to be substantial enough. Right now, public confidence in our elections has never been this low. And this is prior to the release of whatever is going to come out of Maricopa County. The enemy as I refer to them, people that were responsible for the election coup of, of November 3rd, January 6th, were hoping this whole thing would go away by March. And instead, the exact opposite thing. If you look at the Rasmussen polls, even Democrats, 30% and counting, believe that there was significant fraud that affected the outcome, 47% of, of independents and growing. This was a poll that was conducted before the cyber symposium, which is basically created a giant spotlight over three days of major fraud throughout the country. And then you have Republicans that were sitting in on at 74%. That is not a prescription for any faith or confidence. And this is all before the final findings are released in Maricopa. When that happens, you know, we're at a crisis point. And so I think before the courts were acting out of fear because of Antifa and BLM, Right now, they're going to be confronting a different kind of power, and it's going to be a righteous anger that's based in truth, based in justice, based in what really ha happened, and hopefully they'll make some adjustments and do the right thing. But right now, what you've seen are patriots that have done everything by the book, legally, no violence, and they're just trying to hold their government accountable to get to the truth. And to drive this point home, we're not just asking for audits in states where Trump lost. We're asking for full forensic audits in every state because we believe every state had fraud. That means we're actually trying to get full forensic audits done in states that Trump not only won, but in states where he won every single county. That's how pervasive this fraud is. And so that might affect Republicans. That might actually affect the president. But we're not about 
this course of action because we're, we're devoted to one political party over the others. We think that both parties have enjoyed a scheme where certain power players benefit at the expense of the American people. And, it, and it's happening in both political parties. So let's say the Supreme Court rules there was fraud. Would there be uh, Trump being reinstated? Is that possible? Would there be, could there be a revote? What are some different scenarios? It depends on how precise the evidence is. So if we just have a giant mess, but we can't really articulate the number of votes that Trump got in his tally versus Biden, reinstatement might not be the right remedy. But if there is cyber interference, which has been suggested by Mike Lindell and many others, and you can't identify the precise amount of votes, you don't need a new election. Just make sure that the right person is put in office. Um, if that's too much of a pill for the American people to swallow, I suppose you could you could create another election, but this time do it the Amish style, all paper, get away from the electronic interfaces, put the candidates on the ballot. And my sense is that Trump would win overwhelmingly, especially in light of the fact that, that Biden has been uh, so ineffective over the past uh, nine months. And not only that, Kamala Harris, you have to keep in mind during the primaries, she had like a 3% pool for uh, for as far as people that were following her or wanted to, to see her go to the next level. I've never seen a ticket that was so unpopular that somehow managed to secure 81 million votes. I mean, the gig is up. If we have a fair election, these people are going to be exposed. The American people know that. I don't think that the Democratic Party is proud of the people that are representing them. They've taken them to just full-blown Marxism and communism. And we're living that reality right now. We can't go to churches and sing. We have to cover our faces. Our kids are, are being told that they have to take experimental drugs, even though there's no informed consent, even though there's no FDA approval. We are living under the throes of just an absolute communist regime. But everyone seems to be convinced that we're still free. I don't see it. I don't get it. Let's go through some other scenarios. Let's say that the Supreme Court uh rules that there wasn't fraud and that Biden is the legitimate president. Uh, so since we've all seen the evidence, like you mentioned, Rudy Giuliani and all the rest, they actually presented evidence in public hearings. We've got the Lindell Cyber Symposium. We've got the data scientists that can just prove stuff. We've got how the state legislatures uh, changed the election rules. We've got a whole, just a laundry list of ways that we know this election was just done wrong. So uh, if the Supreme Court rules in a manner that's unjust, what remedies do the American people have left? Well, you always start with the idea that this country was founded in the most unique idea, which was turning the monarchy on its head. And instead of sovereignty belonging to the king or a queen, we turned it on and we said that sovereignty belongs to the individual, that we are created equal as image bearers of God. And with that, we will consent to be governed. So at the end of the day, even if the Supreme Court has run away with madness, they still answer to we the people. And so should the legislature. So they're they're going to go. They're going to set the stage for something that will be truly revolutionary if they were to do something so absurd. If somehow we were still sheep and we haven't woken up by then, and we haven't demanded accountability from all three branches, uh, welcome to not the United States of America, but the United States of Communist China, because that's where we'll be. So hopefully, if the Supreme Court does the wrong thing, then 
the American people could just try to find a remedy through the states. Uh, you know, maybe through their governors and legislatures, they could try to uh, disobey uh, a federal government that they believe is uh, illegitimate or something like that. Yeah, well, there's there's the concept of of nullification. You know, you have to understand that the court's jurisdiction is set under Article Three, and the extent of the federal government's power is confined to Article One, Section Eight, which sets forth eighteen enumerated powers. It deals mostly with national security and the governing of free trade. That's it. All other powers are left to the states via the Tenth Amendment, and so. The way that we sold the growing of the states to join the union, if you look at the ratifying conventions out of Virginia and Kentucky, Madison and Jefferson already had this conversation. They're saying, look, if you see that the federal government's gone too far or the federal judiciary has gone too far, you are duty bound to resist. So it's an exercise of your own sovereignty from the state in which you reside. And so what you're going to have at that point are likely the red states that don't want to succumb to the fate of Marxism saying, no, you're outside of your federal authority and we're actually acting constitutional, even though you can declare what we're doing unconstitutional, they have their own sole authority to make the same judgments to ensure that checks and balances are observed. And there could be secession. Well, I don't know. I mean, anything's a possibility. This is something that, you know, that Abraham Lincoln dealt with. I'm not advising that. What I'm saying is we should fight for our union. We should fight for the rule of law. And nullification in many respects is the appropriate remedy. And it's a legal remedy set forth by Madison and Jefferson in those circumstances where the federal government has lost sight of their limitations. And obviously they have lost sight of their limitations going back 200 years. Um, people need to forget that we weren't always United States citizens. We were British subjects. And at some point, they, the, the people rose en masse and, and they decided to say, look, we, we want to be treated like people with dignity. We want to have the freedom to, to have representation. We want to make sure that we're not taxed unfairly. We want to make sure that we can practice our religion. And as a result, a revolution was born. And if you look at the document itself of the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson talks about those times in history where a tyrannical government has become so unresponsive to the people that you have to try and replenish the tree of liberty. Now, that sometimes you know that sounds pretty bloody and revolutionary. We want to do this peacefully. We want to make sure that we can restore the rule of law where we can. But right now, people are scared. They've never been in a situation where government actors are saying you have to take a jab that's proven to still lead to catching COVID. It's proven to still uh, show that you are you can transmit a virus, proven that you can shed the vaccine. And in this insanity, we have no informed consent. We've got tens of thousands of deaths, hundreds of thousands of adverse reactions. And by the way, we only have about seven months worth of data on how safe these experimental drug vaccines are, and we're mandating that you have to take them. That's the reality that we're in right now. So if people think that, okay, I guess I'll do it just because the government said so, or the court did, I don't know what to tell you. I, I would just say, no, we need to believe in the power of no. 
Well, Senator Rand Paul is calling upon the people to resist these unconstitutional measures, and it's it's great to see some leadership uh, in the political world that's encouraging the people to just stand in their sovereignty and recognize the rights, human rights that they have. Uh, I do want to pick your legal brain about uh, the COVID stuff, but before we do, I just want to uh, get a little bit more detail on this nullification. What does the nullification look like uh, if states decide to go that route? Uh, can you go into detail about uh, the nuts and bolts of nullification? Well, it's it's imbued by the philosophy of natural law. You have to understand there's different types of uh, jurisprudence philosophies. You've got living constitutionalists, you've got natural law theorists. Um, if I had to give you a bumper sticker explanation of natural law, uh, it would be it'd best be articulated by Thomas Aquinas. And basically it just says that an unjust law is no law at all and you're duty bound to resist. So what I like to look at is what is the power that we've granted? And we used to have mechanisms in the constitution that would safeguard our sovereignty as state citizens. So back in the day, maybe many of yours might not know this, the way that we elected our U.S. senators was very different. We have the 17th Amendment, which changed that, and that was in the early 1900s. Before, it was our state legislators that would elect the, uh, the uh, senator, and their chief concern was to preserve the sovereignty of the state in which, I'm sorry, I got, a, I got one of my children that snuck in the door here, but their, their chief function was to preserve the state sovereignty, to make sure that the laws that were being written and drafted by the federal government did not infringe on areas preserved by the states. And so we need to start having that debate of, of not just looking at how politicians are voted from a popular standpoint, but what were the original safeguards that were in place to ensure that state sovereignty is preserved? Because the idea here is that local government, even though it's not perfect, is more accountable to a populace than a government that's 2,000, 3,000 miles away. And so uh, I think nullification actually looks like the rule of law, but what the rule of, where, the, where the rule of law takes place is in local decision-making. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't hear politicians talking about how they want to just make sure that the state sovereignty is preserved. I mean, it's not even it's a non-issue in the modern day, but it shouldn't be. I mean, it's still an issue. The federal government is stepping across the bounds all the time, uh, but it's not a popular you know talking point. Um, but for this nullification, are you saying that? Uh, that just the governor and the state legislature would just uh, have a lot more impact on uh, the policies and they would just overlook and not recognize federal policies? No, uh, I'm not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is that you don't have to say anything. This is, a, this is a, a fact. Just read the Constitution and look at the framework that exists. Either the Constitution means what it says or it means nothing. So when I say that Article 1, Section 8 is the extent of the federal Congress's power to, uh, to legislate, what we've seen is a bastardization of that over 200 years, where instead of them focusing on national defense and free trade, the Commerce Clause, things like that, they're now regulating the size of our light bulbs or how much water is in the, is in the toilet. All we have to do is say no. It's as simple as that. It's, it's as simple as convincing our legislators that they have tremendous power in domestic policymaking. It's theirs. It's not the federal government's. 
but we've been convinced over 200 years. The idea, the stuff we're talking about right now was not of any confusion or, or of any consequence to the founders and probably most of our, our uh, legislators, the first 120 years of this country's founding. Something changed during wartime. When you start looking at World War I, World War II, we saw states of emergency and all of a sudden we started delegating these powers away to the federal government because of the war effort. And we never dialed it back to the proper role of the, of the state legislature. The state legislature, in theory, should be the most powerful of all of the branches within our, uh, our, our federalist system. How do we wake up the legislatures to that reality? Speak truth. Stop being a sheep. We've got too many people that are consumed with their comfort. They want to watch Netflix. They want to eat good food. They want to be distracted. And so what we've done is we've created a culture of apathy where we want someone to solve our problems for us. Now we're not aware of what the problems are. We can't even have a meaningful discussion. And most of our politicians don't know what the problems are because they delegate all of their power to administrative agencies who draft rules and, they, and they're created by rule makers that are unaccountable to the electorate. So it's great. It's a great way to do government if you want to be an incumbent and be in office forever. But it's a terrible way to govern if you want to be knowledgeable of the issues, know about whether your law was wise and is having great impacts on the people. And it's terrible for us because what we do is we end up waiting for there to be a, you know, a death on the Supreme Court. And the entire fate of the world now depends on who's, who is nominated. You've got nine unelected justices and everyone's in a panic. And we see the political theater happen all the time. So what we want to do is take away the decision-making process from unaccountable people and leave it to where it was intended to be, which is through the state legislatures, where we can touch our representatives. We can visit them. We can apply pressure to them. And in the event that they do a poor job legislating, guess what? We can vote those bums out of office. That's what it looks like. This is about reclaiming the existing structure that we already have. It's not about... Uh, trying to make things more complicated. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to use the system we already have and maybe take away some of the bells and whistles that we added, like uh, the Dominion voting machines. Um, so we talked about a couple of different options. We talked about if the Supreme Court rules that it was fraud, talked about the idea maybe they rule it wasn't fraud. And what if they decide not to rule? Is there anything you want to mention about that scenario? Or would that also be pretty much same option, the states could take things back. And then I'll add one more um, one more just variable here. What about the idea that there was foreign interference here and uh, then the, perhaps the military would want to get involved to set things right? Well, these are, these are really good questions. They're hard questions. Um, I'll do my best because again, this is a, a case of first impression. And so we're kind of walking through and applying concepts that might apply, but None of us have crystal balls. Um, so if they don't decide, if we're at an impasse, you're going to have, something's going to have to happen. I don't know what that is, but you have to understand that because we are a federalist system, that just simply means that we answer to two sovereigns. We answer to the sovereign in the, of the state that we live. Usually it's determined by the driver's license that you have, and it's established by your domicile. Where do you intend to live? But if you're also a citizen of the United States, you also have certain privileges that um, come from that. And so if you've got an impasse between the two, usually the Supreme Court 
is the arbiter of that. If the Supreme, Supreme Court fails to act, you're going to be in limbo. And that might not be a bad thing because you're going to see a greater self-governance. Uh, you're going to see laws that are going to have to be handled at a local level. You're going to have to have legal disputes decided primarily through state courts instead of the Supreme Court. And I think originally that's what we wanted. You know, it's very rare to have cases go to the Supreme Court in the founding. You had usually disputes or lawsuits between the states themselves, and you'd have to have some resolution there. But legal issues as to uh, the constitutionality of things, most of that was handled in-house. That's changed over the past hundred years. But I think, uh, you know, it's kind of like the idea of gridlock. You know, sometimes when people can't have bipartisan effort and nothing gets done, sometimes that's the best protection. Gridlock is often the friend of liberty. And so maybe that gridlock will actually help us preserve some of our freedoms until we figure out uh, what to do. So that was the first thing. And I think your last question was what? Foreign interference, uh, military law. Okay. Um, that changes the calculus, right? I know that there was an executive order that was signed in 2018 that dealt with the very issue of foreign interference, right? And that provided tremendous power for the president of the United States to do certain things in the event that there was foreign interference. The question is, did the president sign the Insurrection Act or did he sign something that would have given him authority? I don't know because I don't know him personally. I've, I've had dinner with him, but that's the extent of my conversations with him. Uh, I hope and pray that something was done um, and there's been a plan that's outside of my efforts to get audits done, but I'm, I'm working under uh, the basis that irregard irregardless of whether that's true or not, um, it's an inescapable fact that Donald Trump won the election. So to me, he's president. Just because someone committed fraud and propped up a liar doesn't make him president. And so I'm going to do everything I can to ensure that I get my president restored. And I hope that all your viewers and listeners will join me in that effort, not because it's Trump, it's because it's, it's an inescapable fact. And so you have your own show, Professor's Record, you're interviewing people. What are, what are your other efforts uh, in, in this regard? I've got a couple things. On Telegram, I have a channel called The Professor's Record. That's probably where I'm most active. I've got a channel on Rumble, The Professor's Record, and I've got a website, theprofessorsrecord.com. The one thing that I'd like to mention to your viewers that's very, very important to me is that we also have this thing called The Prisoner's Record on Telegram. And The Prisoner's Record features those that have become political targets or are still incarcerated unjustly from protesting the illegal and stolen election on January 6th. We still have people that are inside in solitary confinement for 23 hours of the day on misdemeanor charges. Misdemeanor charges when exculpatory evidence has been denied. They haven't provided all the video surveillance showing how many officers were removing barriers, which would destroy the case of trespass because it shows that it was authorized for them to come in. And uh, they're negotiating strong-arming plea deals without providing that evidence, which is a violation of Brady versus Maryland and should lead to prosecutors being disbarred if this gets to the light of day. So um, the prisoner's record and the professor's record are the two kind of brainchilds of mine. One is dedicated to ensuring that we have free and fair elections going forward. The other one is just to ensure that we don't forget that many risked it all and they, uh, they stood up. And there's hundreds of thousands of patriots that wanted the rule of law to succeed. And instead of that happening, uh, we saw 
what was amount what amounted to a false flag on January 6th, and people have been become persecuted, targeted, tortured, and it's it's unimaginable that this is happening in the United States of America in 2021, but it is. Yes, I think it sends chills down the spines of conservatives when they think about what could happen to them and their family members and loved ones if they decide to act in courage and to resist against the regime. You know, to speak out on social media, to attend a protest, any of these things, um, they're afraid they're going to be debanked, they're going to be uh, criticized, they're going to be spied on, they're, they're going to be targeted. Um, so maybe you can give us kind of more of a summary of January 6th and, and the legal sides of it. You mentioned the trespassing argument. Uh, what about this idea that there, there were agent provocateurs and, and, and FBI informants and, and undercover agents and so forth? There have been several FBI agents that were uh, seen on video that we've confirmed in other places. One of them was with standing by John Sullivan, who is well-known uh, Antifa participant, and he was documenting. So that co-conspirator who was trying to drum up people to go into the Capitol building was FBI, was never indicted. He was a co-conspirator, but he was basically setting people up and agitating the crowd. John Sullivan's not in jail right now, but he went into the Capitol building and documented, and he was the first person that went on CNN uh, spewing his propaganda. So we know that there was infiltration. We know that there were busloads of Antifa members there. We saw um, six different camera angles of what occurred with Ashley Babbitt, showing people changing their clothes, taking cues. A lot of that just doesn't make sense. And I say this as someone who's participated in active shooter trainings. I put on experts on the stand, both from OMI, that's the Office of Medical Investigator. I've had forensic blood experts. I've looked at uh, the security protocols of the Capitol. And those magnetic doors, I, I have to tell you right now, there's no way you can open those. You can tie a truck to the handles and pull off. You might pull off the handles. Those doors are going nowhere, which tells me they were opened from the inside. Now, it's not disputed that the barriers were opened by the police. And we've got videos where it looked like a museum in there. You got people walking around. People are taking selfies with cops, giving hugs, fist bumps. That is not an insurrection. And yet they are suppressing that information and because they're trying to keep alive a narrative, they tried desperately to ensure that Donald Trump never sees the light of day again. And they're willing to engage in the most duplicitous, heinous actions to ensure that this narrative is not disturbed. So you've got people like Jake and Jelly, who's known as the Buffalo Man there. He's a pacifist. He turned himself in. He is not a violent man and he was not a flight risk. And yet he is still treated like he was responsible for killing someone. There's no weapons that were found by anyone. They had zip ties. That was it. You don't take over a country with zip ties. I, I hate to break that to your, your audience here. That's not how it's done. But that's the myth that's being perpetuated. And right now, the FBI is supposed to have provided a report, a report months ago, and they keep delaying. It's because they can't keep ahead of the hundreds of thousands of people that had cell phones that were documenting what happened. And it documents that the Capitol Police were in on it. And don't forget that Trump offered the assistance of the National Guard and it was declined. He doesn't control the Capitol Police, doesn't control the court, uh, the, the Capitol Security. So there was an offer. They declined that. So it looks a lot like a false flag to me when the police are involved and you've got video evidence of it. When they're suppressing that, when you have thousands of hours and they won't release it, that does not happen in a regular court of law. 
uh, and they should not be trying to secure plea deals based on uh, not providing full discovery to the defendants. What about, you know, the mainstream media has started saying that uh, Officer Brian Sicknick died because he was attacked with a ext- fire extinguisher. And then all of a sudden they had to correct that and say, you know, actually he died of a heart attack. And then you had some people, some police officers, uh, you know, that were, you know, they were said they were dead, but then they said that there were suicides. And then the suicides just kept on stacking up. It's like one, two, three, four, five. How many of these Capitol Police officers have committed suicide, and can we really trust that they were actually suicides? No, you can't. In fact, the only death, if you want to call it that, that's been caused that we know, perhaps we don't, was through the Capitol Security shooting Ashley Babbitt. All the other stuff, as you mentioned, has been proven absolutely patently false. And we have families that have corroborated that. And you do have almost like this, this phenomena of people that were probably like whistleblowers that became liabilities to the narratives. All of a sudden, everyone is feeling, in a, is, is feeling like they should be killing themselves. Um, doesn't make sense to me. And I think people's common sense is leading them to, to the, the conclusion that we don't have all the facts. There's also been video evidence of police pushing people that were on the rotunda area and flash grenades being disseminated or thrown into the crowds before there was any breach. And that was at the direction and cause of the Capitol Police. That's been documented. And so it looks like people were ready to to, to be uh, provocateurs, to agitate. And you had some unwitting people that went into the Capitol building. Or some of them felt that they were invited. But this this is beyond entrapment. This is the facilitation and creation of the circumstances that led to the January 6th quote-unquote insurrection, which provided a pretext for the people that were going to go there to object to those dueling electors and present evidence of voter fraud, what did they do? As soon as Arizona was objected to, because that was one of the main states, you had this breach, this orchestrated plan, and what did they do? Two hours later, they said, we can't look at the fraud. Translation, we can't do anything that's going to allow Donald Trump to be rightfully elected. Interesting. Well, you've really been looking at this with a magnifying glass. It's been interesting that Donald Trump was silent for so long about the Ashley Babbitt murder. But then just last week, he put out an official statement that he had been in communication with Ashley's husband and mother and that, uh, you know, that he knows who the shooter is and all, all this stuff. So do you feel like there's going to be some kind of expose uh, regarding this, and then the, the deep state's whole control over this narrative is just going to fall apart. Well, you have to have faith and operate that it will. And the attitude should be that it will because I'm going to do something about it. You're going to do something about it. Everyone's going to do something about it. Our biggest problem isn't being right substantively on the facts. Our biggest problem is platform suppression. And so we all have to become wizards of circumventing those platforms that are being suppressed. And when that happens and the truth is presented, people have a decision to make. I think right now we have awakened many people and they're seeing the truth. That's why we're seeing greater skepticism over all kinds of things from the pandemic, from the jab to election fraud, to critical race theory, because we just don't trust the snake news outlets anymore. We don't trust CNN. And you can tell that by 
their viewership is declining. It's never been this bad. And that includes Fox News. They've lost huge segments of their viewerships. And that's why people are going to OAN and Newsmax. And while none of these outlets are perfect, you also have this class of citizen journalists that are filling the void that are more trustworthy than mainstream outlets. That's why I'm on this show with you today is because I would rather talk to you and talk truth than talk to Anderson Cooper and know that they're going to do some hack edit job um, because that's what they do. They're not, they're not concerned with the truth. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned a lot of legal issues with the COVID pandemic, you know, how there's no informed consent and so forth. Uh, What's the thing that the parents can do right now with uh, children, you know, being masked in schools? What are the legal remedies for, for people with their everyday situations? The responsibility of your child's health is the parents. The responsibility of my children's health is mine. And if you're concerned that you're going to make a decision where it could have a catastrophic consequence, you're gambling. The question is, do you want to gamble with your child's life? Do you want to see the effects of of Bell's palsy? Do you want to see allergic reactions? Do you want to see heart inflammation? Do you want to see blood clots? That's all documented. Do you want to risk that? Maybe your child doesn't succumb to that. That's a hell of a risk. That's not a risk that I would take. So it starts with saying, okay, where does the authority lie? in taking responsibility for my child's education and their health. And it starts with the family. It doesn't start with a public state funded school. And if you've got enough parents that have that resolve saying, it's better that I keep my child home and teach them instead of them being subject to indoctrination and to experimental drugs, the choice is easy. Doesn't mean that your life's gonna be easier because you're gonna have to get used to juggling your responsibilities to be a breadwinner but also someone that's going to handle their education. But that's preferable. And a lot of us got a dose of that last year because we were forced to take our kids out of the school. And what we're finding is that it's probably better if we take a more um, primary responsibility of our children's education to begin with. So I, I would suggest that if you're not going to have a school that's going to look at the science rationally, don't put them in that school. I'm, I'm at an impasse with my university. They're going to demand that I take this experimental drug or I have to take... Uh, have to be subject to invasive testing where they put the Q-tip in the, in your nose uh, twice a week. I'm not going to do either. I'm not going to be treated like some, some experiment. So that's their policy. I'm deciding to not abide by that policy. I'm going to have to suffer the consequences of that. But I imagine there are going to be other faculty members that will be taking a look. I'm going to advise my students not to do the same thing because I care about my students. I don't want them to suffer a miscarriage or have any, any issue because we're not giving them informed consent and these drugs aren't FDA approved. So we start there, you gotta get down to basics. What are you gonna take responsibility for on behalf of your family? And um, are, are you willing to be a person of principle rather than a person of preference? And I think if you're a person of principle, you'll never regret the choices you make. Yeah, I think a lot of people are in fear. You know, they're used to the way things are where they send their kids to school and the government babysits them so that they can go to their corporate job and they can make money to try to survive. And that was working out to a great extent. And then this happened and they're like, well, what do I do now? I I don't want to lose my income, right? It's a fear-based mentality. Um, But you're saying that, you know, you just got to find other options because, it's you're not always going to win when you fight city hall, right? When when you when you try to go and just say, well, my kid's not going to wear a mask, well, then they'll probably you know 
just send your kid home or something like that. So, so you can try at the school boards, you can, uh, you know, try to file a lawsuit against the university you work for, but in, in the end, it's, you're probably going to have to look at alternatives, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I know that this isn't sunshine and rainbows. I, I get that this is hard, but what I'm telling you is I'm going to do what I'm telling you. I'm, this isn't someone that's got any sense of job security. I'm not tenured. I'm on a tenure track and they could dismiss me at any time they want. But I know my mind and I know what I'm going to do for my children. And right now is we need to model that courage because courage is contagious. And if you don't like your options, you can always create another option. That might mean that I have to get a job delivering pizzas as a, as a second or third job. That might mean that I downsize. It might mean that I have to have a very simple life where I don't have all the amenities. At the end of the day, you have to protect your health, though. Because if we're, if we're all in this rat race to make money and then you make a monumental mistake that's life-altering, you might be in a position where even though you've got a great job and you've weaseled your way in there to, to keep your security, you're still not making enough money to cover your medical expenses. People need to think through these problems. Um, so I know it's not an easy choice, but if the world is ending, I would rather be one of those few individuals that keeps his head up high and looks people in the eye and is sure of you know, who I am as a person. I'm not going to let someone define that for me. And we need to be people of faith. We need to, we need to have to have an understanding that telling the truth matters, even if it hurts. I mean, your soul deteriorates if we keep buying into these lies and this propaganda. We act differently. We act as informants. We start telling on people. We're looking around and, and we don't trust anyone. It's not, it's a toxic community. And if you're old enough, you know that this wasn't the way it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. And we've lost that. Now we're all citizen snitches. Um, so if that's, the, if that's the path that we're on, well, damn our comfort. Damn Netflix. Damn, you know, the distractions. I would rather feel a little suffering and fight for something real than to be treated as a servant class uh, citizen. Yes, you know there there are risks, and we have to be real with our audience, and because uh, you have a platform as well about the the risks that you take, you know, with your reputation, with becoming a target, and all of that stuff. Uh, but I'm like you, you know, I've I've gone all in on this, you know, I, I've put my name and my reputation uh, out there, uh, my stance on vaccines and all the taboo subjects, and so now I've made myself kind of unemployable by the Fortune 500. And but I'm I'm optimistic because there are millions of Christians that I I could work with you know related to my my spiritual work that I do there there are uh, millions of conservatives that I could work with with the political work that I do there are millions of us we have our own patriot economy that we can work with each other and create value together instead of thinking that we need to be dependent on the state or dependent on corporate America or or what have you so you know I, I think uh, we we do have to take a stand at some point otherwise uh, we lose our republic and we lose our health we lose our families. Uh, so, so I'm with you there. And any um, final thoughts about uh, any of the topics that we touched on from the audits, anything you wanted to mention that you didn't mention about the audits uh, or the pandemic legal remedies uh, before we wrap up? 
I would just say is just think in, in basic foundational thinking. Always tell the truth. Tell it at the dinner table. Tell it at the school board meeting. Tell it to your employer. And if we all did that, we would live in a reality that is true, not something that has been um, presented as truth through a propaganda apparatus known as the mainstream media. Uh, we need people to wake up and we need you to be encouraged because we're, we're in a much better circumstance than we were back in January. And it may not feel like it because we're in the, the, you know, the crossroads of what is going to happen for this nation. And it's, it's very tense. People can feel it. We feel like we're in the midst of a really, really powerful struggle, but we are so much more aware of our circumstances now than we were last year. A lot of us were operating under the auspices that, you know, Republican party, good Democrat party, bad fraud only happened in a few places, not all over the country. Uh, we trust Dr. Fauci. All of that's changed. All of it has changed. And you've got um, a citizen class that has become an expert on a lot of the topics that we're covering. And we're talking about moms showing up to school board meetings that know that critical race theory is toxic. We've got doctors that have finally come out saying, look, I can't do this. I can't recommend this. There's no scientific literature that tells me what I'm doing. And, and people are finding their courage. So what I would leave your viewers with is find your courage, step up and be remembered be remembered some, somehow in, in the history books, because if you're silent, you're complicit. Absolutely. Dr. David Clements, uh, Professor's Record, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, thanks for being a true patriot, helping to wake up the country, save our republic. Um, we'd love to have you on the show again. So we'd love to talk to you as things develop, pick your legal mind. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. David Clements. We are going to commercial break and we'll be back for my final thoughts. Hello, I'm Mike Bendell, inventor of MyPillow. Thanks to your support, you've helped make MyPillow become one of the fastest growing companies in America. Over the last 12 years, you've helped MyPillow create thousands of jobs right here in the USA. When I got MyPillow, I'm asleep almost immediately. I stay asleep at night and I wake up more well-rested in the morning. That's why I invented MyPillow. My patented fill adjusts to your exact individual needs and helps keep your neck supported and aligned. I'm interrupting this commercial right now. Retailers have canceled my pillow. And to thank you for your support, I'm going to pass the savings directly on to you. Go to MyPillow.com right now to get deep discounts on all my pillow products. For example, you can get my premium my pillows regularly $69.98, now just $29.98, the lowest price ever. For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. Helping their customers achieve global connectivity is the driving force behind this brand story. Satellite phones from Whenever Communications provide voice, SMS, and data services without the need for cellular network. So travel with confidence, knowing you're covered absolutely anywhere on Earth. Satellite communications uh, for me started after a disaster that happened in Indonesia. At the time I was in communications, but more of on a local cellular communications. We started looking for different alternatives uh, to stay connected. Cell towers go down, landlines are no longer available, and we came across technology of satellite communications. Uh, everything from voice 
the data. We give people the ability to communicate wherever they want to go, whether it's just helping somebody work remotely or stay safe or feel safe if they're going offshore or have more redundancy for their business. So being able to give people that communications and reliability is really joy mine. Visit privatesatphone.com today for a free satellite phone with the purchase of a monthly service plan. Welcome back. We covered a lot of ground today. You know, in the monologue, I broke down how and why the illegitimate Biden regime has completely failed in Afghanistan. Our guest, uh, David Clements, walked us through all the scenarios for how this stolen election could possibly turn out. Uh, the legal remedies we have in our Constitution for the states and the state legislatures to take back their power from the federal government. And, you know, in the end, what we really came to was that it's all about two principles here, faith and courage. We have to be willing to take a risk for something that's greater than ourselves. You know, it's, it's, it's our, our family, it's our country that we, we have to stand up for. And uh, there are risks involved and we need to have faith that God is going to be there to take care of us when we take that risk. And we need to have courage to be willing to take that risk. And, and so it was great to hear David talk about those, those principles and also lay out uh, the, the stark reality of, of the, the situation that we're in uh, with the election situation, with the uh, January 6th uh, political prisoners. I mean, he laid it all out. It was an awesome interview. We really thank him for his time. Uh, tomorrow, we have two patriots we'll be interviewing. Uh, we have uh, Caroline Weatherington of Defend Florida and Caroline Craze of LookAheadAmerica.org. You know, we're interviewing these patriots who are helping us save our country. Uh, these are just regular citizens who who are willing to have faith and courage, and that's what it's all about. So uh, thank you for watching tonight. Making Sense of the Madness is four days a week, Monday through Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern until 7. And we're on AmericanMediaPeriscope.net on the live player. You can see the library on the channel link. You can also see us on Rumble and other places. And you can also watch us on Amazon Fire and Roku. So there are lots of ways to watch the program. That's it for tonight. And up next is Pete Santilli at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thanks so much. God bless.